Hey, howdy, space nerds. Thanks for tuning in each week as we explore space exploration. Now, don't let the conversation stop when you reach the end of this episode. Let's keep chatting online. We've launched a new Facebook page to host discussions and share the latest space news. Find us by searching Are We There Yet podcast or visiting facebook.com slash awtymars. I'll see you there. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last summer, I had the chance to meet OSIRIS-REx. That's the asteroid-bound spacecraft that will collect a sample from the surface of the asteroid Bennu and send it back to Earth. I also met Dante Loretta. He's the mission's principal investigator. Ahead of the launch back in September, Dante gave me a tour of all the science instruments on OSIRIS-REx in the clean room at the Kennedy Space Center. The spacecraft is en route to the asteroid, about to use the Earth's gravity to slingshot it into an orbital inclination to match Bennu. Even though the spacecraft is about a year away from the arrival at the asteroid, there's still some really cool science and exploration happening. I had the chance to chat with Dante here at the studios at WMFE. He gave us a rundown of what's ahead for the mission, how you chat with a spacecraft zooming through the solar system, and how social media and board games are garnering more interest in space exploration. OSIRIS-REx launched in September of 2016 from Cape Canaveral, and we've been cruising through interplanetary space ever since. The mission is targeting near-Earth asteroid Bennu. We're going to spend about two years mapping that asteroid, looking for regions of interest on its surface, ultimately sending the spacecraft down to make a brief contact, collect the samples, which will ultimately be returned to Earth. And uh, we're only a few months into this mission now, aren't we? We've been traveling now for over seven months. Okay. So the spacecraft's doing well, healthy, responding to all our commands, and everything has checked out. Cool. Now, where where is it in relation to to Bennu at this point? Uh, The spacecraft is actually relatively close to Bennu, about 0.2 astronomical units. Unfortunately, Bennu is on a different inclination, so its orbital plane is different from that of the Earth right now, and the spacecraft is still on the Earth's orbital plane. Uh, The spacecraft is targeting an Earth gravity assist in September of this year and will use that gravity assist to actually change the orbital plane of the spacecraft and set it up for the rendezvous with Bennu next year. Gotcha. So it's kind of going to sling around the Earth there and and kind of move around? Yeah, we're going to fly basically right over Antarctica. So we're coming under the south pole of the Earth, and we're going to bend the trajectory of the spacecraft up to the inclination of Bennu's orbit. How fast is uh, OSIRIS-REx going at this point? Well, speed's an interesting concept when you're in outer space. There's speed relative to the Earth, speed relative to the Sun. Uh, We're averaging about 12 to 13 kilometers per second relative to the Earth. So really, really fast, right? Yeah, you know, 20, 30,000 miles per hour, roughly speaking. So uh, OSIRIS-REx will do that that little uh, gravity turn around the Earth, heading towards Bennu in the right inclination. Uh, How long is it going to take to get there? Uh, We arrive at Bennu in August of 2018, so sometime next year, and that begins our approach phase. So we'll still be half a million kilometers away from the asteroid, but we'll be able to see it, and we'll be using our long-range camera, the polycam, to check out the operational environment. And we're looking for any moons that might be orbiting around Bennu that we weren't able to detect from the ground, any dust or maybe even comet-like jets, anything that would pose a risk to the spacecraft. So kind of our first job on the way in is to clear the operational environment, make sure it's safe for the spacecraft to go ahead and enter the proximity. Is there an expectation that you'll find a moon or comets or anything like that? Well, there certainly is an expectation that we might. Uh, Asteroids typically do have satellites. It's pretty common in the near-Earth asteroid population to see binary systems. 
We know there's nothing larger than about 20 meters, mm-hmm. uh, but that's still a pretty large rock to be orbiting around Bennu, and we would definitely want to know about it and steer clear of it. We're capable of detecting objects down to 10 centimeters, so like basketball-sized things that might be in orbit around Bennu. And still, you don't want to fly your spacecraft into one of those. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's entirely possible that there's a satellite in orbit around Bennu or multiple satellites in orbit around Bennu. Other asteroids have them. Now, the last time you and I chatted, we were inside the clean room. You walked me around OSIRIS-REx, which is so cool to see something like that that's getting ready to go to space. And then I, I got to see the launch, but I didn't get to see you afterwards. What's that feeling like when you see something that you've worked on for so long get launched into space and go on this awesome mission? It's almost hard to describe. And just asking the question gave me kind of chills just to remember that moment. And, you know, I was in the control center, so I didn't get to see the launch live. I was watching it on screen mm. and listening to all the telemetry and the technicians talking through the systems. And uh, it was transcendental. It's the only way to explain it. I mean, I really felt like I was going into outer space, like my team was going into Mm -hmm. outer space. So many people, thousands of people had worked long hours to make that a success. And people really moved by it. I mean, I I heard from a lot of people who were at the launch. It was a very emotional experience. certainly was for me. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe that was just because I'm so heavily invested. But people were excited about this mission, and I, I definitely felt that. I felt that energy. That's something that I've noticed recently, too, and I wanted to ask you about this. You know, what role does the social media play um, in kind of drumming up this excitement and this public support? I'm thinking back to Cassini. There's this push to save Cassini. <laughs> right. like, you can't save Cassini. This is its mission. But now that there's, uh, there's, it has its own Twitter account, there's people talking about it. People are getting really, really excited about these spacecraft, right? Yeah, and and I really am glad to see that because, first of all, the American taxpayers, the Canadian taxpayers, French taxpayers paid for this mission, right? It's it's our mission, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it represents the best that we can achieve. You know, it's something that is peaceful, scientific, seeking knowledge, exploring, and really extending the human consciousness into the solar system to understand our environment and, and where our future might lie, both in terms of resources and also in terms of impact hazards and things we might need to mitigate into the future. So social media gives us an amazing immediate connection uh, with people who are interested in the mission and also ways to reach people who may not be paying attention to it, but it comes across their Twitter feed or their Facebook timeline, and they say, oh, that looks interesting. Let me find out what's going on there. And we really try to keep the community informed. You know, the Twitter is actually the spacecraft that's talking. Mm-hmm. So Osiris Rex is the one who's tweeting and talking about his experience in outer space. And uh, people seem to really enjoy that. There's a lot of chatter between spacecraft these days on Twitter, which Mm -hmm. is really fun to watch. So, yeah, we really love it. And uh, we encourage our fans and and the community to reach out to us and engage on social media and and other outlets. I mean, it might be a little too soon to say anything, but do you think that that's having some impact in in budgeting? I mean, we're seeing a a little bit of an uptick in planetary science budget. Uh, Do you think that social media plays a role in that? I do. I think that overall, people are really excited about what's going on, and they can share that, and they can communicate that excitement to the people who are involved in the mission, but also, more importantly, the policymakers, who are the ones that make the decisions about where the funding priorities are for the United States. And we are grateful that we are seeing a lot of support, uh, regardless of political party. People seem to really embrace planetary exploration. And, you know, a few years ago, it was rough. The budgets were getting cut heavily in planetary science. We didn't really understand why or what was the driving motivation for that. But we do feel it is something that the nation and the world should be proud of. And I think it's a great investment just in terms of inspiring the next generation to do amazing things. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that the spacecraft tweets, but that's not really the spacecraft tweeting, right? Or is it? 
well, actually, it's not this, you know, being transmitted, you know, from the spacecraft through the Deep Space Network to the Twitter account. No, we are uh, interpreting what the spacecraft is telling us. And then, you know, it, it's, it is the spacecraft's voice on Twitter. Uh, well, so social media gets, you know, folks like me on my phone interested in, in space, but you're working on uh, getting younger people involved in space using games, right? Tell me about that. That's right. I have a side project. I created a small company called Extronaut Enterprises with my partner, Mike Lyon, and we work to make board games and family games around real scientific themes. Our first game came out in 2016. It's called Extronaut, the Game of Solar System Exploration, and it was really inspired by OSIRIS-REx and our launch campaign. So in Extronaut, players are competing to build their rocket and get their spacecraft to any one of a number of destinations across the solar system, like landing on the surface of Mars or orbiting Europa. And whoever collects the most science points by the end of the game wins. Mm -hmm. uh, we followed that up in April of 2017 with Constellations, which is a game about stars and the different types of stars and how stars go through their life cycle and change. And players are competing to collect the right combination of stars to build constellations. And ultimately, it's a hex puzzle, and they, they work together to put the night sky onto the table. And one of our Kickstarter goals, which we reached, was to add glow-in-the-dark stars to the game. So mm -hmm. when the game is over, you turn off the lights, and you get this beautiful night sky on your table. What's been the response from kids? Uh, we get a lot of positive response mm -hmm. to Extronaut. It was named the best family board game of 2016 by Good Housekeeping Magazine. I get a lot of letters from parents just describing how excited their kids are about this game, how they got to fly to Pluto, and they really had an amazing time. And we add an educational workbook to the game itself. So there's a lot of information about OSIRIS-REx, how do rockets work, how do we design spacecraft missions. In the Constellations game, it's all about stars and how they are formed and how they evolve and black holes and supernova and all the fun stuff that you get by studying mm -hmm. um, stellar life cycles. And you went with a board game. I would think that kids in, in this day and age would go for an app or something like that. Are, are, are families still playing board games? Actually, the board game industry is booming right now. It's really popular. I think there's a bit of a backlash against all the video games in the sense that people want a social activity. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it's a big part of our family life. I have two young kids, and we love to sit around the table and play games together. It's a lot more um, emotional and fun and kind of a bonding experience to sit down and play a board game together. Now, are these games that are, are geared towards kids who already have an interest in space, or are you able to kind of recruit them to your side of planetary science? My goal is to kind of hook them. So you want to you want to create a game that's just fun to play, mm -hmm. regardless of what the theme is. But then you want to say, wow, I'm actually going to put a spacecraft into orbit around Uranus? That's mm -hmm. so cool. I want to know more about that planet. I want to know more about exploring the solar system. Can you really do that? Can you really get a robot mm -hmm. out to that planet to investigate it? So, yeah, they have a good time. But we kind of sneak the learning in on the side. All right, back to OSIRIS-REx. The spacecraft is pretty far away. How are you able to communicate with it? Yeah, the uh, one-way light time is about five minutes right now. So by the time we transmit a signal from the spacecraft, it takes five minutes to travel across interplanetary space and be picked up by one of the deep space network antennas here on Earth. So the spacecraft itself has three different kinds of antennas. Uh, and, and we characterize these in terms of gain, which basically tells you uh, information per you know, area that you're transmitting. So the low gain antenna broadcasts all over the sky, but very, very low data rate. And we just kind of keep track of the spacecraft through the low gain antenna. Mm -hmm. But if we really want to get data down, we have that big two meter radio dish, which is mounted on the side of the spacecraft. And that's called the high gain antenna. And we've got a 100 watt amplifier that we push the data out through that antenna. 
and it requires very precise pointing. And there are a, sta- a set of three deep space network stations uh, around the Earth, and they're equally spaced, so any one of them can see any point in space at any time. There's a, a facility in Goldstone, California, one in Madrid, Spain, and one in Canberra, Australia. So we have a schedule. You know, you kind of reserve your antenna. Mm-hmm. Uh, we typically talk to the 34-meter antenna, so like one-third the size of a football field, pretty big. Huge. Uh, <laughs> if you want, if you really have critical operations or you need to get uh, more data down, you can schedule the 70-meter antenna, which is twice as big, and really amazing thing to go and visit and, and take a look at. But there's only one of those per station where there's multiple 34-meter antennas. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, every month we're negotiating with all the other space missions that are out there in the solar system. Everybody wants their downlinks and their data to come in. And there's a fantastic group at the Deep Space Network that takes all those requests, looks for the conflicts, deconflicts the schedule, and says, okay, your pass is coming up on Canberra Station 35 in 16 hours, right? So the spacecraft is ready. It knows that the station is waiting for it, points the antenna, and beams the data down. Typically, five to eight hours of transmission per day is what we're getting. That's really cool. So as it traverses the the sky, it it kind of pings these different networks, right? That's right. Yeah, the Earth is rotating, and it's not uncommon for us to do a handoff from one station to the next. As the Earth rotates around, one of the antennas sets, and then the next one rises, and the spacecraft knows that's going to happen, and it's pretty seamless, the transition. Mm -hmm. It's like one drops you, the other one picks you up, and the spacecraft is transmitting because of the one-way light time, it doesn't know if the antenna is listening or not. It's, we told it, transmit at this time. It assumes it's transmitting. On occasion, the antennas go down. There's you know, Life happens, weather happens, power outages. And so that data just gets transmitted to nobody. Mm-hmm. And we keep it on board the spacecraft. There's a data recorder. And so we check and we see, did we get our data down? No, we missed. Even if you missed part of the data, you'll just send a retransmit request to the spacecraft and it'll play it back again. And what's really cool is if you can you can go onto the Deep Space Network's website and see which ones they're actually talking to, right? That's right, yeah. They got a great interface, mm-hmm. graphic interface. You can see the different antennas at the three locations around the world and which spacecraft are currently uplinking or downlinking data. So OSIRIS-REx is still on its way to Bennu. Are you learning anything from, from the data and the telemetry that's coming back? Absolutely. It's, it's learning to fly, right? We got this amazing machine out into outer space. It, for the first time after launch, it was in the environment we actually built it to operate in. And you want to check it out. Think about what it's like when you get a new car, right? You want to try every feature. You want to take it out on the highway. You want to see what it can do. So uh, for us, it's a very quantitative and exacting process. We're basically checking out every system, making sure it behaves the way we expect it to, and actually characterize its behavior in much greater detail, like our thrusters, right? You, you have a certain expectation of how your engines are going to perform, but it's not until you get out into space and you fire those rocket engines up that mm-hmm. you'll really see how they do. And you fine-tune your model, and that allows you to do a better prediction next time you need those things. So we've checked out all the science instruments and even collected some science data. We used our cameras to look for Earth Trojan asteroids during the outbound cruise phase. And uh, we're really excited for the Earth Gravity Assist because we're going to use the cameras and the spectrometers to image the Earth and the Moon system, calibrate the instruments, and also get some really cool images. That's really neat. That's pretty cool. Yep. Now, it, it, that calibration is very important because the kind of the, the main event for OSIRIS-REx is doing this real 
close pass by of the asteroid surface, right? You need to be very, very uh, fine-tuned, right? Yeah, we're basically doing precision formation flying with an asteroid when we're at Bennu. And uh, the mission is designed such that we always get a little closer and then a little closer and then Mm -hmm. a little closer. And ultimately, we will make contact with the asteroid surface with the sample mechanism only uh, to grab the sample that we're going to return to the Earth. And so the gravitational field around Bennu is 10 micro-Gs, remembering that a micro-G is uh, one one millionth of the acceleration on the surface of the Earth. So it's a very tiny gravitational force compared to what we're used to here. So you're basically hovering, uh, docking with an asteroid in that kind of environment. And so any force that's imparted on the spacecraft, either from a thruster or even from solar radiation pressure or heat, coming off the asteroid or coming off the spacecraft can substantially change where you are compared to where you expect it to be. And so calibrating those precision thrusters is absolutely essential to operating around the asteroid. How are you going to do that? Because you said there's a five-minute delay, so someone can't be flying this this thing, OSIRIS-REx, right? You've got to have the... OSIRIS-REx is flying itself, right? That's right. OSIRIS-REx has onboard autonomous guidance systems for the final closure with the asteroid surface. And we have two different technologies. We, you know, kind of the belt and suspenders model for NASA. You don't want your pants to fall down, wear a belt and put on suspenders. If one (laughs) breaks, the other one's going to keep your pants up, right? So uh, we have uh, devices on the spacecraft called LIDARs. These are light detection and ranging devices. They basically fire a laser and they measure how long it takes for the laser to leave the instrument, hit the surface of the asteroid, and then return. And since we know the speed of light, that tells us how far away we are. And so the LIDAR is constantly measuring the range and the rate at which we're approaching the surface, and we have pre-programmed a safety corridor. And it says if you're approaching faster or slower or your range is not within the timeline that we indicated, something is not right, and it's running fault protection software. It just says, okay, I'm outside of my corridor, fire my engines, and get away from the asteroid. The second technology is called natural feature tracking. And for this one, we use the camera systems. So during the course of the two years prior to getting the sample, we're going to be building a catalog of features on the asteroid. And they may be things that you and I would think of as a feature, like a big boulder that's very distinctive, but they could also just be kind of weird patches on the surface that somehow in the pixel map they they show up as a unique item on the on the camera system. And so we'll upload a feature of, of about 300 of these uh, of this catalog into the spacecraft's memory and during the approach to the asteroid surface it'll be taking pictures and then doing automatic image correlation with those catalog features and saying okay I know where we are and we're on course or we're off course and the same kind of thing. So either one of those systems will be able to get us to the surface of the asteroid. Now, how close, you said that, that the, the capture device will, will touch the surface, but how long is that capture device? And, and I asked that to find, find out how, how close the big part of the satellite is coming right. to it. We call that device the TAGSAM. It's the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism. Mm-hmm. And TAGSAM is a three-meter-long robotic arm with basically an air filter head on the end of it. Mm-hmm. So we'll be, and it bends a little bit, so we'll be like two and a half meters from the surface of the asteroid to our optics, our cameras, which kind of stick out the top of the science deck and will be the closest things to the surface besides that device. That's really close, huh? Very close. It's as close as you and I are sitting right yeah. now. Does that keep you up at night? I got other things to worry about right now, so no, I'll get there, right? I mean, at this point, yeah, at this point, we want the gravity assist to go well. We want the braking burn so that we get to the asteroid to go well. So I'm kind of focused on the near term goals. That's, you know, I've been in this business now for almost 14 years. I've been working on this program. 
And I learned to kind of take it, uh, you know, one step at a time. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, what, what's the thing that's right in front of us right now? Let's make sure we're all good to go there. I'll worry about getting the sample after I see Bennu and realize what we're in store for us. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm long-term thinking here. So tell me, what are we hoping to learn when, when this sample does, first of all, the sample return part of the mission is really cool. So just remind our listeners what, what that is. Yeah, so after we touch that asteroid surface, we're essentially running a space vacuum cleaner where we hoover up rock mm-hmm. and gravel and dust from the surface of the asteroid. And then we tuck that into a sample return capsule, which is kind of the size of a pizza box. Mm-hmm. And that's the only part of the spacecraft that'll make it back to the surface of the Earth. We put that filter into the return capsule in March of 2021, or maybe later, depending on how things go, we'll depart Bennu and we'll be on a return trajectory to the Earth and we get back to the Earth in September of 2023. And just before hitting the top of the atmosphere, about four hours out, the spacecraft will actually spin up and eject the capsule and the spacecraft itself will then fire its engines and stay in orbit around the sun. But the capsule will come into the Earth's atmosphere about 28,000 miles per hour and uh, the atmospheric friction will slow it down to the point where it deploys a parachute, and it'll drop gently to the desert floor at the Utah Test and Training Range just outside of Salt Lake City. And that's when my team and myself run out there or fly out there in helicopters, grab that capsule, and as quickly as we can, ship it back to NASA Johnson Space Center in mm-hmm. Houston, Texas. That's so close to your office. You couldn't just move it over a few hundred miles, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, the good news about the UTTR is it's controlled airspace, so uh, we've got a large footprint on where that capsule can come down. And they also have a lot of amazing assets. They basically track high-velocity objects entering the Earth's atmosphere for their own purposes, mm-hmm. not for NASA sample return missions, but they have all the equipment and technology that, that we need. So they'll be able to spot this thing coming in from, from many thousand miles away. Now, what are you hoping to learn from this, this sample that comes back? What, what, what's in store uh, for scientists looking at this? you got to remember the uh, asteroids are ancient rocks, right? They're, we think, four and a half billion years old, and we know that from meteorites that land on the Earth where we've performed radiometric age dating. And so they're older than this planet. They're definitely older than life, and pretty much the, the dawn of our solar system they date back to. And we chose Bennu because it has some really interesting properties. It's very dark. It's what we call its albedo, which is the percentage of sunlight that's reflected back into space, is 4.5%. So it's darker than the blacktop in the parking lot, which we think indicates, like the blacktop, it's got a lot of carbon in it. And we're particularly interested in the chemistry of carbon in the early solar system, organic molecules that may have formed on the asteroid or even before the asteroid formed in what we call the protoplanetary disk phase and understanding if those molecules may have led to the origin of life on Earth. So we're really going back, asking the fundamental question of where did we come from? And by understanding that, we really can start to address how common do we think life is in the universe, in our solar system. If the building blocks of life, like amino acids, which build up our proteins, and nucleic acids, which build up our DNA and our RNA, if they're present in space rocks, then that means they're everywhere. They're all over the place, and the chance of life with a similar chemistry to ours uh, originating somewhere else, like Mars or Europa, goes way up, and uh, definitely elsewhere in our galaxy and our universe. Now, you've got OSIRIS-REx. You'll, you'll be busy with that for, for quite some time. We have also have Juno that's bringing us some really cool images. Cassini, some great images on, on its last, uh, last bit of its trip. As a planetary scientist yourself, 
Where else do you think scientists need to be looking, or where should the next uh, kind of deep space mission go? Well, I'm a big fan of sample return. I think okay. the amount of information that you get from having samples on Earth is unprecedented because not only can you take a look at it today with all the amazing equipment that we have, right? We've got transmission electron microscopes and ion microprobes, and we can literally pick these materials apart atom by atom to understand their chemistry, the mo molecules, their isotope ratios, all the fun stuff that, that geochemists do. But they're also available for generations of people to look at in the future. People are still looking at Apollo samples. There's even some samples that were collected from the moon that the containers haven't been opened yet. Mm -hmm. And those are available for future researchers. And researchers today are doing amazing analyses that nobody imagined in 1969. So New Frontiers 4 is the um, next mission in the same program line as OSIRIS-REx. Those proposals were submitted earlier this year. I'm rooting for comet sample return myself. I just think getting some material back from a comet would be amazing and answer all kinds of fundamental science questions. And then the the kind of the holy grail of sample return is, is Mars sample return, mm -hmm. right? And so I'd really like to see us get serious about a Mars sample return mission and get back some of that ancient Martian material that would really help us understand what was the aquatic environment on Mars and did the origin of life occur on that planet, maybe even give us indications that there's still life on Mars, just maybe buried under the surface deep in, a, in mm -hmm. the mantle. I mean, what are, what are the hurdles facing sample return missions? There's not many of them. I mean, just thinking back, you've got OSIRIS-REx, there's, you know, moon rock that was brought back on Apollo, but not much else, right? Well, like any planetary mission, they're complicated, and everyone adds a new challenge. So going from the asteroid sample return, OSIRIS-REx, to the comet sample return concept, uh, now you're dealing with ice, and ice can make a mess. It can melt, it can sublimate, it can react, it can change the chemistry there. So that would be the big challenge with a comet sample return. Can we keep it cold, mm -hmm. or can we change the ice so that it's not going to affect all the other minerals that are present in the surface of the comet? Uh, with Mars sample return, you're really dealing with the fact that you've got to get down to the surface of a planet and then somehow, robotically or remotely, launch off the surface of a planet. And we've never done that before, right? Every time we've launched off the surface of a planet, we've really only done it from the Earth and from the Moon. Uh, there's been humans involved. Uh, the Russians managed to get samples back robotically from the surface of the Moon, but that was a long time ago. And that's not nearly the same amount of challenge that we're looking at for Mars. So the Mars architecture for sample return requires multiple vehicles. Every step of the process has to work or else you kind of go back to square one. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about getting to the surface of Mars, collecting a sample, launching off the surface of Mars, probably into orbit around Mars, and then rendezvousing with that and bringing that back to Earth. So the real challenge is the money. We could definitely do it. We could do all these things. Uh, it just requires the, the willpower of, of the American people. The argument on the other side is that the technology is, is developing so quickly that, that you can just bring all of that stuff that you would use to analyze a sample, you can just put it on the surface, right? Is there going to be a point where where that overtakes the uh, the benefits of a sample return? Well, being somebody who's done a lot of chemical analysis in laboratories and has also built uh, instruments to fly on spacecraft, I can tell you the stuff on the spacecraft is nowhere near uh, the stuff we can do on the ground. 
You know, you can't do this kind of atomic resolution imaging. A lot of it is because it requires very special preparations. You know, just to get a sample ready to go into a transmission electron microscope requires many, many hours of people working in the laboratory to get the sample into that condition. So there's still no comparison to what we can do analytically on the ground in our laboratories compared to what we can do on a spacecraft mission. I, I think the answer might be in the fact that if we could get people to Mars, then you can, first of all, collecting a sample is much easier. Launching is probably easier because you got somebody right there controlling the, the system in real time. So I would love to see the human exploration program and the robotic planetary science program kind of merge and focus on the goal of humans on Mars, Mars sample return. And how far away do you think we are from something like that? Again, it really depends on the political situation. I think if the if this country decided to do it and got serious about it, we could do it within a decade. Um, but if we can kind of continue along the meandering path that we're on, Mars sample returns always 20 years out. Mm-hmm. Well, Dante Loretta, the principal investigator of OSIRIS-REx and planetary scientist, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Dante. Great to be here. That was Dante Loretta, principal investigator of the OSIRIS-REx mission to recover a sample of an asteroid and send it back to Earth. Be sure to follow Dante on Twitter as well as OSIRIS-REx. They're posting some cool data about the mission as it progresses. And you can follow this show on Twitter as well. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Just search Are We There Yet podcast. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.